if we just look at the last census report, exports of U.S. manufactured goods were up 18% from 2020 to 1.1 trillion. And that's before they, you know, do their seasonal adjusting, magical, bureaucratic, give it the spin the talking heads want. You know, um, exports of industrial supplies were 170 billion. If it's an industrial export, it's going to have parts from a precision machining shop in it. There's going to be fluid. There's going to be hydraulics. There's going to be air activation. There are going to be pins for electronic connectors. There's going to be manifolds. I mean, you know, if it's any more sophisticated than a hand tool, like a shovel, we've got parts in it if it does something. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Our guest on the show today is my friend Miles Free, Director of Industry Affairs at the Precision Machined Products Association. Miles was actually the first featured guest on this podcast four years ago, and I'm very thankful to have him back. I think you will enjoy this conversation in which we discuss topics such as tariffs, shop safety, electric cars, and Ghostbusters. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I am very honored to be with Miles Free, my friend, director of the PMPA, that's the Precision Machined Products Association. He also has a podcast and a blog. He's had a long time. Uh, the blog's called Speaking of Precision. And the podcast is the same name, right? Speaking of Precision? Uh, yes, we Speaking of Precision, Monday with Miles. Monday with Miles. See, I'm so much of a procrastinator that I couldn't even get podcasts done on Monday. I need until Friday to get my podcast done. <laughs> and Monday is probably probably a way better day to release a podcast than than Thursday or Friday. Absolutely. My superpower is just showing up and digging in. So that's what we do. So Monday with Miles, we try and uh, cover something to help you start your week. How far ahead do you work? Uh, when we have a meeting ahead of us, like we just came back from our update, uh, we had two ahead and we've had as many as uh, three ahead. But quite frankly, it, it may be Wednesday or Thursday and it's time to record. We go in and record. Wow. So you'll just be recording three, four days right before. Yeah, absolutely. We want to give folks relevant, meaningful. I'd love to think that our stuff, we covered stuff that required reflection like the thought leaders you bring in, but a lot of times we're just trying to give people, you know, tools or information that, that'll help them with their daily business. Well, I mean, that is the most important thing. I'm trying to do that. Sometimes it comes later in the editing or anyways, enough, enough podcast talk. It's probably boring half the people out there. Let's tell people some stuff that hopefully can help their business. And do a little more self-reflecting uh, and self-indulgence uh, on the way, because Miles is actually the first person we interviewed on the podcast, aside from my dad. He's the, you know, I mean, that doesn't really count. He's the first special guest that we have had. So it's pretty awesome. Episode 149. I've been, feel like this 150, I've been just like trying to claw towards it. Um, scratching and clawing, wondering if I can string another together. And so it's so cool to finally catch up and get to do this and reflect 
it, believe it or not, it was it was like four years ago, April of 2018. I interviewed you at the PMPA Technical Conference. Wow, four years, 149th podcast. Congratulations! How auspicious! How auspicious! Thanks for remembering. Uh, I, I am honored to think that I was your first special guest. Yeah, uh, that says a lot to me. So, Noah, uh, what's happened since 2018? Well, everybody knows what's happened since 2018. But let's take a moment to think about what we've just come through. Our shops in the PMPA, our PMPA member shops. Wait, before you, I'm going to totally interrupt you right now. Of course. That's what friends are for. Well, I love where this is going. However, I want to give people like the one minute version of what the PMPA is, because, you know, these people, most of them are in the same business. They're in machining. Um, Maybe they're in higher volume stuff. But I want people to get a little context of who you are and what you do and what the PMPA is. And then we'll take it way back. All right. So I'm the director of industry affairs. I was a metallurgist professionally prior to joining PMPA. I handle, I, I love to tell everyone, I handle all multi-syllable requests. <laughs> so if the word has more than one syllable, I'm probably the guy they're going to call. Chemistry, statistics, quality, machinability, metallurgy, government affairs, regulatory. And uh, lately we've been doing the statistical analysis for the industry. Uh, enough about me. Our shops are contract manufacturers. They're leading shops. The NAICS code that we are classified in, NAICS 332721, is um, the average sales per shop is about 5 million. The average sales of a PMPA shop is probably between 12 and 14 million. And the difference isn't that you all of a sudden get to 10 million in sales and say, I want to join a club. The difference is at one point you're a four or $5 million shop and you join the PMPA and you learn leading kind of practices, best practices, and you grow the business and learn to thrive. But I mean, there are some small shops in there, people newer on the scene. There are. And it's not that we have, you know, discriminate based on sales, but the typical, the longevity of our shops is probably around 30 years. Uh, we've got newer shops joining all the time. and But again, these are leading shops. We're not making parts for buggy whips. Although one of our shops just celebrated its 150th anniversary. So, I mean, it's a big tent and we welcome everybody. Also, I was going to say, you shouldn't make fun of the buggy whips because, you know, one guy we've interviewed twice, Jay Souter, he's using like expensive German DMG machines to make parts for horse and buggies for Amish people. So one of my first famous claims was we sold some 5160 spring steel to the Amish, to the buggy makers. We had a claim and they didn't do checks. And you can imagine the bureaucracy of trying to get cash for a settlement for a material claim. On It was fun. All right. Well, good. But now we know you shouldn't just make fun of making buggy whips. But Absolutely. So now we've established who you are for the people that didn't listen to the second and third podcast. So let's reflect. Okay. Four years ago, one of the main topics we talked about was tariffs from uh, You Must Not Be Named. And everybody was just like, what the hell is going on? He's going to do these tariffs, you know, hope we're exempt. And you, you know, you lean Republican is my understanding. But even you weren't in favor at the time of the tariffs, right? Well, I'm a free market libertarian, and that translates in my world as conservative. And if you're given a black or white choice at the polls, it's generally the guy in the red tie, not the blue tie. (laughs) But uh, we were definitely opposed to the tariffs. And, uh, you know, I hate to take a victory lap and say, I told you so, but this is the steel benchmarker price for steel. The end of the year, this high curve, this is what we pay in America for steel. All right. Tell people who can't see it. What does it say? I will. I'll do that. But I want you to see, this is the American steel price. And these are the world steel price and the Chinese and European steel prices. So here's how much difference we pay. 
In December of 2021, for Hot Roll Band, the U.S. price for steel, just steel, was $1,947 a ton. In Europe, that same quality of steel was only $1,016 a ton. Well, wait. So wait, say say that again. What was the difference in price? Uh, well, the difference was $931, almost 100% of the European price, right? So we pay $1,947. Uh, the EU pays $1,016. In China, that same quality of hot roll band is $634 a ton. The world export price is $820, which is, you know, half of what we get to pay. And what are we paying again? Say that again. We pay $1,947. What? There's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're paying $1,313 more, which is two times the price of a Chinese ton of steel than the Chinese are. We're paying $931 more than the Europeans are for a ton of steel. And is this because of the tariffs, directly because of it? It's absolutely because of the tariffs. The tariffs were initially stated so that we could get U.S. mills up to capacity. We're up to 82.4% capacity. We've been as high as 85. Uh, we were 85 back in August of 2021. What were we before the tariffs? Uh, we were probably in the low 70s. Okay, so it really didn't, really didn't change much. Really didn't matter, but Washington continues to treat us like we're North Korea. They've got an embargo on steel for us. We get to pay more for steel than the rest of the world. Geopolitically, you do that to an enemy. Incredible. You don't do that to your own people, and they're doing it to their own people. It was a bad idea to begin with. I said so then when the guy in the red tie was there. It's still a bad idea, and the guy in the blue tie is there. So why didn't they change it? Because we know that politicians love to change everything just for the sake of changing it when they come in. I, I wish I had the insight to answer that, Noah. I could give you a knee-jerk reaction and say that the current administration thinks they're protecting steel union jobs, but the steel union jobs are a tiny fraction of the jobs in the total metalworking industry that are affected by that. Okay, so if we're paying twice as much for this type of steel, how are we staying competitive? You know what? There's, there's a saying about American ingenuity. I'm going to tell you that we've got really talented performers. When we talk about the world, we talk about the labor market. And one thing that I very seldom talk about is labor. I talk about talent and the people in our shops, the men and women in our shops, I'll put them against anybody. And this, this whole deal about immigration, you know, immigration being bad. I agree. Illegal immigration is bad. But I'll tell you what, anybody wants to come in and compete with me on what I do because I'm confident that I have what it takes to compete on the world market. And I'm confident in the capabilities and the technologies in the shops I visited the PMPA. We can make the parts that make a difference. We have members that export parts to Switzerland. Switzerland probably doesn't import a lot of machine parts. We've got some members that export parts to Switzerland. When uh, we were making parts for ventilators for the U.S., we already had shops that were making ventilator parts for China. We are competitive. We are globally competitive and we have rule of law. And when you get a certification from one of our companies, you know, there's legal structure behind it. So um, rule of law is, you know, I mean, that's essential to being having one of the best economies. That's like one of the main ingredients. OK, so we're paying twice as much for steel. When we can get it. When we can get it. What are people doing? You're saying people are just having more efficiency, getting other costs down to deal with it. What are people doing when they can't get the steel? Are they using, are they able to use like alternative materials or is there like some secret secondary market that they go off of? Are they trading? Are they? No, no secret secondary market. Sometimes they pay the, the higher prices, pay the tariffs. One of the things that happened before it was a tariff, and so the prices really escalated. The current administration has changed to a scheme called a tariff rate quota, which says we've signed one with Europe and we've signed one with Japan. We don't have one with Great Britain yet. 
And so the tariff rate quota says you can bring in so much of a particular material at a given price. And after you exceed that amount, you can now pay the tariff again. So in many cases, people are paying the higher prices to get the material. And, um, you know, if their customers really want the parts, they'll they'll pay it too. So we're, you know, we're thriving. No, I mean, I don't want to come out of the gate sounding like Miles is whining about the government. First thing, um, it's probably top of mind. But I mean, we're thriving. We, we are thriving. Right. And so what I want to know is why? I mean, Graf Pinkert is crushing it right now. This is the best our business has been in 20 years, my dad says. Why is everybody killing it? Well, I a lot of people would say the supply chain is broken and that's a reason why it shouldn't be. I think that we need to acknowledge the fact that between the US government and the Federal Reserve they helicoptered in probably two or three times as much money into the economy as we really needed to stave off the pain and suffering. And all that money is chasing the old level of demand and the ports, the railroads, the transport system is set up for the old level of demand, not the old level of demand times two. So what's helping our shops to thrive and is then driving orders for equipment from Graf Pinkert and company, I believe is that because no one, everything got financialized. Disclaimer, I'm an MBA. I'm not a financial MBA, but I'm an MBA. The MBAs financialized everything. Nobody wants to hold inventories. You know, everybody's dragging out payments. And guess what? When you don't have inventory and all of a sudden demand spikes, you're between a rock and a hard place. And you've got to call somebody that can get you parts. And our members are agile. They're nimble. They've got materials. Probably they know people who have materials. We have quality suppliers in our association, service centers, direct mills, importers. If you call a PMPA member shop, the chances are you'll get a yes quote and you'll get a delivery that's, it's a responsible delivery. So I like to say our link of the supply chain isn't broken, and we proved it in December. We came in at our highest December ever. We were up 23% higher than the five-year average for December's. Highest December as far as turnover for the year, as far as... Sales, yeah, sales, yeah. Our year finished up uh, 18.5% over the, the prior year. And our leading indicators for sales, lead time, employment, and profitability, all strongly optimistic going forward next three months. Now, you know, I just saw a news report about shelling in eastern Ukraine. <laughs> you know, there, there's our disclaimer, folks. You know, geopolitics trumps everything. But uh, bottom line, our part of the supply chain is as strong and thriving as, as it has ever been. Right. And you're seeing some real reshoring, you'd say. I can't say that I'm seeing the reshoring, but if we just look at the last census report, exports of U.S. manufactured goods were up 18% from 2020 to $1.1 trillion. And that's before they, you know, do their seasonal adjusting, magical, bureaucratic, give it the spin the talking heads want. You know, um, exports of industrial supplies were $170 billion. If it's an industrial export, it's going to have parts from a precision machining shop in it. There's going to be fluid. There's going to be hydraulics. There's going to be air activation. There are going to be pins for electronic connectors. There's going to be manifolds. You know, if it's any more sophisticated than a hand tool, like a shovel, we've got parts in it if it does something. What's your opinion of upcoming electric cars. I mean, I know a lot of people in our business, you know, Graf Pinkert's business traditionally, multi-spindle screw machines, cam screw machines. We're doing all kinds of other things now, but, you know, people doing the internal combustion engine, that was a big, a big important customer for us. Where do you see electric cars and uh, making internal combustion engines, what are people saying as far as what's going to be where they're doing the most work? Are people really hedging their bets against doing the internal combustion engine stuff? Where I see electric cars is right outside my door. That's my Tesla Model Y. You got a Tesla. 
I got a Tesla and listeners, obviously we didn't plan this part of the podcast. So I'd love to give you a little bit of the backstory. My very first white paper for the PMPA in 2003 was about the electrification of internal combustion engine cars. And a couple of shop owners actually wrote my boss and said, you better check that boy's urine because he's smoking something because 98% of all PMPA shops were in fact making parts for cars. And I can tell you right now, I cannot name more than uh, on one hand, the shops that I know personally that are making parts for one of the Detroit three. Directly. Well, or their spinoff, Visteon, Delphi, whatever those things were or, and became. And I used to put steel in them. I was doing the steel business. So, I mean, I knew where all that went. It's nowhere near the importance that it was back at the turn of the century and in the first decade. I know probably a dozen PMPA members that are making parts for Teslas, and they're not turned parts, and they're not leaded steel. And where do I think it, the market's going? Well, I'll just say this. Using the cost to compare on my electric bill and the fact that I get three miles per kilowatt hour, I'm paying 1.7 cents a mile to drive my Tesla. My Honda Civic Hybrid, when I first got it in 2015, was a nickel a mile, and that was before the gas prices shot up. So what do you think it would be if you're just driving a, you know, a normal car that's getting 30 miles per gallon in Chicago? Well, if it was getting 30 miles, it's probably not a normal car because I rode with somebody in one of those Lincoln Navigators. 20 miles per gallon. 20 is optimistic. You know what? That's probably 15 cents a mile. Wow. I mean, 20 miles into three bucks, 15 cents. I'm at 1.7 cents using the cost to compare on my electric bill. Incredible. And if I wasn't recording on this phone, I'd show you the screen because it tracks it. The software tracks it. That really does check out. But say you're a customer that's, you know, a really high volume shop and, you know, your bread and butter has been going to the automotive companies for a long time. And I, I know of one, for instance, that, that is making stuff for Tesla. Can that work make up for the work that they lose with their traditional internal combustion engine work? Or is it kind of apples and oranges? I mean, is it going to really hurt our members anyways, you know, even though, yeah, it's an alternative customer? No, it's not an alternative customer. I, you know, markets change. Markets change. And either you're savvy enough and you're with the market or you're just you know going to going to milk it while you can milk it and then you're going to figure out what to do with what's left and the savvy shops are figuring out that uh, we can see the writing on the wall we can see all this uh, ESG stuff going on in in the Wall Street Journal we can see that the white house is trying to favor you know the unionized detroit companies and their you know startup efforts to make a, an electric vehicle and the fact of the matter is, last year, Tesla put 936,000 electric vehicles on the road and the charging infrastructure for them. Uh, this world is changing. Our markets are changing. And it's no longer about turned parts out of leaded steel. That was a mainstay, but the world is maturing. We're getting more sophisticated. We have more critical customers. We're thinking about more than the cheap price of the car. We're thinking about impacts for our children and our children's children. And using aluminum to make heat sinks for batteries in a car I can plug in in my garage, that's an alternative for some of us right now. Listeners, first, I got to tell you, I'm so grateful for you guys tuning in. I know we have lots of competition out there. Freakonomics, This American Life, Joe Rogan. Also, I just want to let you know, if you have guest ideas or questions for me or Lloyd, we'd love for you to reach out. And if you want to talk about future advertising opportunities, we're very happy to talk to you anytime. Feel free to email me at noah at graphpinkert.com. That's N-O-A-H at G-R-A-F-F. -F 
P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. And now, back to the episode. You see shops in the association that do a number of different sectors, medical, aerospace, firearms, automotive. Uh, You have an MBA. You know all kinds of important ingredients. If you were going to uh, start a machining company, what sectors, what products do you think have the most upside, like in the near future and in long term? You know, there are a million ways to serve customers. I mean, say you had the equipment and the talent that you could do any of them. I probably wouldn't do it because our member companies are already so good. I know, but that's not an answer to my question. Well, I guess that I would tell you that I would practice modern portfolio management and I would have probably no more than 20% of my resources committed to any one market sector or application. Fair enough. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be an expert. You know, you can't be an expert in five markets, let's say, but you can be an expert in producing high tolerance, precision, machined, human safety critical. And if you are on top of that game, you can adjust to the different all right, that's that's an interesting answer, but you know, I, I mean, semi-diplomatic. Let me turn it around. What which one wouldn't you be in? I, I would I would not be selling to the bankrupt thinkers of Detroit automakers. Okay, not a fan. I sold steel to those people for my entire career. They were zero sum game. We win, you lose. They're bankrupt thinking. Put them where they are now, and without the help of Washington, they they wouldn't even be here. Well, Ford didn't get the help from Washington, but right. So, what's your opinion of the the? It seems like you know quite a bit about the electric cars, and what's your opinion of Ford's upcoming? Um, you know the trucks. You know, I think Ford knows what they know, and they know they're a truck company and not a car company. And I've got a Tesla sitting out there, and. There's a lot of people have money down on a Tesla cyber truck, but if I needed a truck and I needed an electric truck, it'd probably have a Ford blue oval on it because Ford knows trucks. Right. And I think, you know, they're, they're not going to have half the amplitude on the learning curve on the truck part. Now the electric part, eh, that could be exciting. Look at GM struggles, but Ford knows trucks and I've got absolutely no grief with Ford in that area at all. I think they do a great job. In fact, we're taking uh, 50 of our member employees to see a Ford assembly uh, truck assembly plant as part of our mastery program in May. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Ford has a lot of cool stuff like that in Detroit. Maybe GM has stuff like that too, but I was there for a machinery dealer convention. What's interesting to me is Ford at one time was what Elon Musk was. <laughs> okay, so Ford... Ford made horseless carriages a thing, right? And Elon Musk is making these electric horseless carriages a thing. And John D. Rockefeller made oil and gas and kerosene a thing, you know, standard oil, not oil that'll just explode, but our oil's actually controlled and it's kerosene and it'll burn, not explode, right? So I think history doesn't repeat itself, but it kind of rhymes. And so when in our history books, they tell us, oh, Ford did this and the assembly line and all this. And what did Ford do? Living wage and created new ways of manufacturing. What's Musk doing? <laughs> These huge gigafactories, right? New ways of automotive. We're, we're seeing what our grandparents and our great-grandparents saw with this blue sky transformation. So uh, I'm, I'm optimistic Ford will get through it. But, uh, you know, especially in the truck area. And they're actually, they looked at what Tesla's doing and saying, you know what, we can actually kind of run power from this as part of a shared grid storage kind of idea, which, you know, that's interesting. So um, I love competition. I'd love to see more competition and not just niche competition at what's the sexiest car for the richest guy. I like the fact that I'm a bureaucrat here at PMPA. A bureaucrat. And because I invest, oh, I am a bureaucrat. I don't, I don't work with my hands anymore. I, you know, answer the phone and emails and I, I'm an apparatchik, right? 
but I could afford it because I invested wisely. You invested in Tesla stock and then sold it and bought a Tesla? I invested in Tesla stock before the split and before the run-up. And yes, I sold Tesla stock to buy my Tesla. That's awesome. Well, it's, you know, it like I said, it's a long story. But, you know, in 2003, people told my boss to check my urine because I was smoking something. And the fact of the matter is, I had a vision. I had facts. I had a thesis. I had confidence in my thesis. When the time came, I invested in my thesis. I assume you still have some left over. I do. I yeah. So I just sold fifty. I I sold fifty shares. Right, enough to cover the car. <laughs> right. Um, you're a reader, right? What's something that uh, you read recently? that got some emotional reaction out of you or just um, intellectual inspiration? So I don't have the book here because I keep giving it away, but there's a book called Ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I. And um, it has a graphic about our life, our life. And what I found interesting about the graphic was that it had these areas that it didn't have any words in. It's like a Venn diagram. I'll show you in just a second. I'll send it to you to include in your show notes. So these four innermost points around the center, those were blank because they couldn't figure it out, but I figured it out. So what this says... Yeah, for the people that that aren't watching. Yeah, so what this says is there are four circles that overlap. And in your life, it's what is it that you love What is it that the world needs? What is it that you can be paid for? And what is it that you are good at? And where all those four things overlap, that's your ikigai. That's your purpose. That's your, the phrase I use is your highest and best use, your ikigai. My highest and best use seems to be a bureaucrat, you know, apparatchik at PMPA, where I help our members adapt and thrive. So when you look at that, the overlap of what it is that you love and that what the world needs, that becomes your mission. And what the world needs and that which you can be paid for, that's labeled as your vocation. And what you're good at and what you love, that's your passion. And, you know, you're on social media here. Your your passion is, I'm going to communicate with a broad audience. Well, The overlap of your passion and your mission is your purpose. The overlap of your mission and your vocation is your duty. The overlap of your vocation and profession, that's your expertise. And the overlap of your profession and your passion, that's what I call the labor of love. So those last four, those are my contribution to this work. It's a slim volume. I want that book. Yeah, I'll I'll see to it. You get one and I'll send you this graphic. Is it on audio? I really only listen to my books. I I wouldn't know. I don't listen to uh, I listen to Latin jazz. <laughs> you you don't listen to audiobooks? No, I read. I like that Amish guy making the buggy. You know, you know, actually he listens to audiobooks. His brother, he's Mennonite, but his brother gets him audiobooks, get downloads it on his phone or well. Do you have anything else that you want to add? Anything you want to say to the people of the world? If I had only one message to share with your listening audience today, and that listening audience is manufacturers in the United States, I would tell them this. This is the year that we need to all get serious about safety in our businesses. This is the year we need to find our religion on safety. There's a number of reasons, and I'm going to go through just a couple of them, and then I'm going to give you some really good justifications why. Sounds like a, it sounds like a podcast that needs to be done, for sure. It, it absolutely is. So in first place, we need to keep our talent safe. They're talent. Our performers are talented people. We're kicking the world's butt when we're paying three times the price the Chinese are, and we're still competitive. That's because our performers do a great job. We owe it to them to keep them safe. Second, we're all facing a workforce shortage. We can't get the talent we need, right? We all are looking for one more talented person to run a new piece of equipment so we can grow our business. In order for us 
to attract talent. We need to become the preferred employer. You're not going to be the preferred employer if you don't treat your people respectfully. Become a preferred employer, that means you have great policies on safety and health and great practices too. You walk the walk. The third reason is it's the stinking law. You have a general duty. The general duty clause OSHA of the OSHA Act in 1970 is you will maintain a workplace free of hazards. Hello, it's the law. Fourth, the economics really demand it. Now, Noah, you're going to say, I'm just a humble seller of screw machine equipment, right? I don't know. I don't know anything about it. This is just how it was when we got it, you know. Right, right. But here's the deal. As is, where is. Here's uh, exactly, right? Like new, as new. We've already heard the stuff I was talking about, about the tariffs and the tariff rate quotas and the inflation, which is just killing people and dying a death of a thousand cuts, but they might not even know it yet. But here's what happened in January. On January 14th, 2022, in the Federal Register, the Department of Labor published the new penalties for safety violations. If you fail to post a poster that the government says you have to have posted in your shop, you can be fined $14,502. And by the way, if in February you failed to post your OSHA 300A and you're required to, you can be fined another $14,502 because failure to post is a stackable violation. It's not just you did it and all the failures to post count as one bad. No, they all count. Okay, that's just failure to post a single sign. Failure to abate a penalty, a problem that you were told you had to fix, is another $14,502 per day that you failed to abate it, up to 30 days. So the guy wearing the blue tie, his agents can fine you 30 times $14,502 because you didn't do this or didn't do that. And now you get some small insight as to why there was so much pushback on OSHA orders for vaccination and mask mandates. Every time somebody didn't comply is worth $14,502 only on a failure to abate basis. A serious violation, another 14502 There you go. That would be the failure to comply with that, their orders. Willful and repeated. Noah, what would be responsible to get someone's detention so that they knew you were really serious? If the penalty is 14000 what would you do if they were really, really bad? What would you make that penalty up to? Would you double it? I don't know. I mean, it's such an arbitrary number. Would you triple it? It is an arbitrary number, but you're you're really, this is willful. They're, they're not respecting the law. What would you do? Would you double the penalty? Would you throw the book at them and triple it? So if they're, what specific violation are you talking about in this scenario? The same thing they did last year and they 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 repeated it. They didn't learn. So it's a repeat violation or it's a willful violation. They said, I'm not going to do it because I think you're wrong. Tough. Shut them down. Shut them down. Well, that's pretty good. Willful or repeated violations under the current rules are $145,027. Noah, that's 10 times the penalty amount. And so how do you feel about this? Well, I mean, does that sound like that's promoting American competitiveness? Do you think that, I mean, 10 times, 10 times the penalty? Well, why can't people just just fix it? Yeah, well, why can't they? But why do we think that we can go 10 times? 10 times, that sounds pretty draconian to me. But, but wait, because like that guy on TV, those commercials, there's more. The Build Back Better bill, as proposed, takes the willful and repeat up to $700,000. $700,000. Why don't people just fix it then? You know, if OSHA was the expert, 
if the government really understood all the nuances, if they sent people in who were engineers and not, you know, uh, generalists that have no industrial experience, you know, OSHA isn't always right. Is OSHA the same thing as the EPA? No, EPA handles environmental matters. And there's an even more painful story for your listeners. I thought OSHA, I thought OSHA was environment. No, OSHA is Occupational Safety and Health Administration. The EPA is Environmental Protection Agency. OSHA was started in 1970. EPA was signed into law by then President Nixon. And the thing that really frosts my cupcakes is that uh, in 2015, the Department of Justice signed a memorandum of understanding with the Department of Labor that they would pile on after an OSHA investigation. If OSHA found a company to be egregious, they would initiate an environmental investigation using EPA laws, EPA rules. So it's like kick them while they're down, okay, is, is one approach. But here's the deal. OSHA regulation violations, no, those are civil penalties. That's just fines. But by piling on, by saying, oh, you're, you're bad, now we'll go after you for EPA stuff, EPA is criminal. Now it's jail time. How many of your listeners opened their business up so that they could have the government tell them that if they don't do things exactly the way my paid person goes in and tells you to do, you can go to jail? You ever seen, uh, you know, it was you, you make me think of because um, because I know you, you are down on the EPA. I used to work for the EPA. I'm not down on them. I had a temporary job with the state of Ohio EPA for one summer. Have you seen Ghostbusters, right? The first one? Yes. Right. Well, the new one's actually very good. We watched the new one and then we watched the first one after we watched the new one. And I don't know if you remember in it, but. You know, the guy who comes in and shuts down their power grid and lets all the ghosts out is from the Environmental Protection Agency. Oh, there you go. They must have had dirty coal. Yeah, he's like, I don't know what you're doing here, but I'm going to find out. And he says to his assistant, shut it off. And he's he, the guy's like, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> and then he just shut it yeah, off. Yeah, There was one apocryphal story, but it happens to be true about an EPA investigation out west. and. They let a spill go through. It was mine. I don't know if it was mine tailings or what, but it was the EPA people that actually initiated the spill into the Colorado River. And, you know, funny, nobody paid that fine. Nobody got to jail on that. You worked for the EPA. I did. I had a, I was a temporary hire. It was uh, back in the day, some title, something. We were looking at uh, the big Darby Creek and, um, Effluent from uh, gop piles from strip mines, and there was uh, a paper company there, and the paper company's effluent was slightly alkaline, and uh, acid leakage from the gop piles, the strip mine stuff was acid, and rather than let this alkaline effluent neutralize the acidic runoff, the uh, determination was this company should spend millions of dollars to treat this water. It just, it was kind of pointless. I moved on. I never heard the word GOP before, but is it basically what it sounds like? Yeah, GOP. Yeah, it's it's the tailings from a strip mine. So it's all the overburden and all the minerals. It's like GLOP. GLOP without the L, right? So, okay. I mean, I'm just trying to understand now where we're going with this. Safety needs to be a key thing that people are thinking about right now. But then you said, then you started talking about your unhappiness with OSHA. All I'm saying is that there are forces that are more powerful than us. And those forces are employed by the government. And they have the ability to levy fines of $145,000 per violation per day. And if you're a $4 million in sales shop, you can't afford very many $145,000 violations for very many days. So you are truly betting your firm the livelihood of all your employees and their families and their families' dreams. Those kids who want to go to school, want to do what they want to do, that all goes away 
if you decide it's not important today to remind your employees to wear their eye protection or to put the guards on the machine before they hit that big green button, because that could be $145,000 under this current situation. And if Build Back Better comes back, it's 700000 You can't afford a month. You can't afford a month. And the question I ask is, is that really the role for our government? I think there has to be a happy medium. I mean, the, the other guy was trying to just get rid of everything, wasn't he? I don't think so. He actually had more inspectors out in the field than the current regime. But, you know, that's another story. I like how you, I like, I like, I like how you call them regimes. <laughs> well, they were regimes. They're, they are regimes. Totally. Well, this is fantastic. So I'll, t- I'll tell you a quick family story, and it's silly, but it might explain my regime thing. I like silly family stories. Go for it. So my wife's reading a book about some author is his travels with George Washington. And I'm, I apologize. I don't have the title. She just picked it up. And uh, so George Washington is it's like travels with Charlie. Well, this is travels with George Washington. It's kind of humorous. And she's talking about why all these places say George Washington slept here because he literally visited every state that was in the union and he avoided the states that didn't sign until he'd go back and visit them. And you can imagine doing this, even if you're not on horseback. That's interesting. When, when did he do that? As president. Oh, as president. He was visiting. And, and so the interesting thing I told my, my wife is the earliest ancestor we have on my father's side, the free side, is a guy who ran a mill in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. It was a grist mill. His name was Robert Freeze. It had an S and an E. What is a grist mill? It, they grind grain. So the farmers would grow grain, but you have to grind it. Well, after you grind the grain, so you sell what you can, you eat what you put up, what you need for your people and your animals. You give to the poor what they need, but you still got extra grain. And what you do historically, is then you distill that into fine whiskey. Which you're a fan of. There was, well, I happen to have a a small affinity for it. So it turns out there was a whiskey rebellion and the people in Pennsylvania, probably around McKee's Rocks, didn't take well to paying tax to this new fangled federal government, this new arrangement uh, on their whiskey. So there was a whiskey rebellion. So... I have no documentary evidence that my forebear, Mr. Freeze, was actually involved in the Whiskey Rebellion, but I have it on pretty good, pretty good faith that we didn't even like George Washington back in the day. We're just independent kind of folk. Has there ever been a president that you liked? You know, I really admired Thomas Jefferson. I thought that Thomas Jefferson really did. I was talking about in your in your lifetime, but so, so yeah, I'll tell you, uh, my father was a labor union officer, and uh, he took me to see when JFK went through, uh, I don't know if it was Youngstown, I don't know, I, I went someplace, and then the governor spoke, and Humphrey came through, and there was, I don't know. But I remember being raised in this union labor household, and the respect my dad had for JFK, and I remember JFK saying, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And I think how we've managed since the 60s, you know, in 60 years, we've managed to absolutely turn that on its head. And now it's about how much money can the government dump into your wallet? How much can the government do for you who we prefer as opposed to you who we don't? And it's just, it's totally on its head. And I'm like, I'm a JFK Republican. I'm a JFK Republican because I think that the government's role is to provide for the common defense, you know, do those things and stay the heck out of the way of the people and the invisible hand, the economy that is thriving despite their tariffs, tariff rate quotas, and all their other rules and all the crazy orders they've made us do that seem to be debatable regardless of what your opinion is. Well, Miles, thank you. And uh, 
yeah, it's it's really fun having you on the show and giving us some really good food um, to marinate on. Well, thank you, Noah. Congratulations on 149 episodes. Uh, you know, consistency is a good thing. Uh, follow follow through is a great thing. And again, I'm very confident in our industry. I'm very confident in the talent that our people have. And we need to really focus on uh, making sure that we're running safe and not not losing money with all this inflation. So look at your list. I'm looking for more guests. So if you have something that comes to mind as far as safety, send them my way. I'll do that. In the meantime, I'm sure somebody will be on to refute every single point I made and uh, let me know when they come in and I'll, I'll listen to that podcast too. <laughs> I hope so. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Music